He said, I need a beer fridge. And if they get here and there is not a beer fridge under my desk, there's going to be hell to pay. Yeah, now you're just making shit up. All right, let's do a podcast. Okay, here we go. Today is Monday, April 6th, 2015, and this is episode 112 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, good evening, Jerry. So how are you tonight, sir? I'm great. How are you? I am doing pretty well. Uh, you know, it's it's Monday instead of Sunday, which is our normal recording night, but... Easter things and all that for those who celebrate. That's right. That's right. So, The thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. All right. So uh, first order of business is, uh, as we've talked about the last couple of episodes, uh, we are giving away a ticket to the High Tech Crime Investigation Association Conference which is being held in Orlando, Florida from August 30th through September 2nd of 2015. Uh, This ticket is worth $595. Um, But if you don't win the ticket, you can still use the the, the discount code defensive security and get 10% off, which is 60 bucks. That's pretty good. Uh So uh, so to win the ticket... We are asking our listeners to tweet us with our uh, w- with our Twitter handle at DefensiveSec uh, between April first. Well, was it to tweet us or mention us? Or well, mention us. Either way. Yes. Either way. Because you know you might be telling your friends about how cool we are. That's true. As opposed to telling us how cool we are. Because we already know. And we're humble. True. Carry on. True. So yes, um, actually, uh, I know I don't know if you figured it out yet, but I'm definitely intending to go to the uh, the High Tech Crime Investigation Association conference. So I like it. I, uh, I got a, uh, I got I got approval from the current employer to go to DerbyCon. So next, I'll work on on that. Okay, good deal. Because it does look like a cool conference. It does. It definitely does. So, um, so moving on, uh, next order of business. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention this too many more times, but we have a Patreon campaign going, and uh, for those of you who have donated, I am really kind of taken aback. I, I, I really appreciate everybody's generosity, and uh, you know, if if you haven't donated and feel like donating, you can donate at Patreon.com/slash/DefensiveSec. Yeah, seriously, uh, you guys have overwhelmed us with uh, generosity, and really, really, really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Definitely. All right, so um, so moving on to stories. Our first story tonight comes from DataBreachToday.com, and the title is "New Malware Attack Prey on Banks." So, this is a this is a pretty interesting story. Uh, you know, normally banking Trojans are are becoming kind of passe, but the deal here is this particular banking Trojan is targeting commercial banking customers. And what's what's really interesting about it is some of the social engineering tricks it uses. So uh, it does the some of the normal 
uh, man in the browser type shenanigans, right? But instead of you know the the the, the typical uh, you know way of, of of trying to fool you, what it instead does is uh, it it detects that you're trying to visit a bank, and then it portrait or it displays an error message that you know the site is down for maintenance, and it gives you a, a number to call, you know, to complete your banking transaction. And the scammers here ha- actually set up a call center, and they, which definitely raises their risk level. Absolutely, you would think. It some I, I you know I wonder if this is kind of the next evolution of the the um, the Windows call center or the Windows support. Yeah, it's pretty pretty ballsy. Absolutely, but um, you know they're. There is apparently not a very clear understanding of how this thing propagates, uh, but it, you know it's presumed that it is coming in via social engineering or, or phishing types uh, of attacks through email. But um, I think last I saw the detection for this this last uh, ver- uh, variant, which by the way is called Dire, if I didn't say it before. Uh, is pretty spotty. There's not a lot of not a lot of support or, or detection for it. So, um, you know, this is something that I've I've been on the drum about quite a lot, particularly in the smaller companies. But I guess it's it's probably really important for everybody, uh, all size organizations, is is to really think about how you isolate those really sensitive assets that are performing sensitive things. And I've I've talked to this, I made this point with a number of people recently uh, that especially for for a a banking type application, you probably want to dedicate a system for that where you don't have people checking email and browsing the internet because, you know, I don't think, I don't think their losses are covered. What about spinning up a, a static VM? for that sort of stuff that you take a snapshot and restore back to no good state when you're done with that session. Yeah. I think there's a number of ways to accomplish it, but yeah, I mean, I, you have to do some, I mean, you don't have to do anything, right? You can be one of these victims, right? But um, right. yeah, but you, this, I think you have to do this, something. This show is about solutions. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but you know, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I will tell you that my, um, you know, I, I think what you described is another level of maturity. But one thing I've I've seen a lot of people do is uh, is kind of think about that type of model backwards, or where, where they'll think about, well, okay, I'll I'll install VirtualBox, right, and I'll do my banking inside a VM, and then I'll you know surf porn and download wares and whatever else on my, you know, on my actual system. That's really not a great way to go about it. Because, you know, if you get a rat, they can control your VM. So True, we're raising the bar. Everything can have holes poked in it. Everything can be defeated. But I'm just trying to figure out what's viable and reasonable, right? You know, I I can envision having a secretary or having a business analyst or somebody who's not very technical savvy, giving them a, a, a document that says, okay, double-click on VM Workstation, 
open this thing up, start this up, do your thing, here's your link for it, and then shut it down. You know, I could I could envision that as as viable. And it it would I think it would definitely raise the bar, like you said. I think that's probably more viable than having dedicated machines that get ignored or misused or probably so. Yeah. Yep. You know, the other thing I want to say too is that what's interesting about this targeting commercial banking is commercial banking customers don't have the same fraud protections as personal banking does. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know they usually typically have higher balances and such. Right. The the transaction costs are are or the transaction amounts are a lot higher. So they don't have you know they don't have to um, you know, commit as many fraudulent acts, I guess, to make the same right. amount of money. Um, and you know, it's. It, I have to wonder if there's another interesting dynamic to this that the banks probably aren't as incentivized to go fix this problem as they are on the on the uh, uh, you know, consumer banking side. Yeah. So. It's where the money is, right? I think we're going to continue to see a rise in this. We're seeing all sorts of interesting attacks against commercial banking entities right now. That's for sure. Got to go where the money is. All right, our next story, also from Data Breach Today, and the title is Cyber Attacks Target Energy Firms. Kind of short and sweet title. Uh, There is a newly discovered piece of malware called Laziac, I guess is how you would say it which appears to be targeting the energy and, and gas sector companies primarily in the Middle East. And as far as we can tell, it is, um, it's really a reconnaissance type piece of malware, which can eventually be used to um, uh, install other pieces of malware like Zeus or CyberRat. Uh, but, you know, they're, the the hypothesis put forward by this is that it's you know it's probably being deployed by a nation state or let's see they actually have a they have do a we, list do, here right do do we need like a little bumper sound for whenever we say nation state no well so so i think this this is a little more responsible than we normally see All so right. so it says which suggests corporate espionage huh Competitor or corporate espionage on the part of competitors, nation states, or mercenaries. And I guess the only group that that really excludes are what uh, I don't know, hacktivists, uh, bored kids in the basement. Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty, it's pretty all encompassing, I guess. But, um, yeah, so this. Here's where this one goes a little interesting for me. Keep in mind, this was a, a pretty recent attack, like you know, fourth quarter of last year through um, the early part of 2015. Its method of propagation or its method of infection is the is leveraging an exploit in a in a three year old Microsoft Office vulnerability or Microsoft Office package. Awesome. Totally awesome. I, I like. I can't find the quote right now, but the author made something, some uh, some kind of wisecrack that said, you know, the uh, the attackers 
clearly understand the lack of investment in software of this particular sector. <laughs> you know, in in their in their office suite. So, yeah. Um, well, I think I think this sort of talks to this concept of steady state. I think there are certain industries that just don't have the culture of patching. You know, if it doesn't broke, don't fix it. Leave it alone. It's it's scary to patch stuff. Well, you're well, you're clearly right. We have some we have some objective evidence right here. <laughs> but you know, we have evolved past that. I think in terms of computing, uh, you know, especially hell, hell, my thermostat had a patch the other day. You know, we just we we were having this discussion with. Um, a buddy of ours who probably would not like us talking about this, but, uh, you know, he was kind of educating us on the world of biomedical devices that are certified for a specific OS version, a specific patch, and you cannot touch it. Uh, I just, I get it. I understand. But I also think that that is not viable long term. You know, if you're designing a brand new medical device today and you don't build in the concept of, you know, patching for these sorts of things, it's it almost seems irresponsible to me. But at the same time, the flip side is, look, we certified it for a certain version. We did all of our testing. For us to patch, we're going to have to do all this regression testing and recertify for safety of life every single patch. No, that's not viable either. So they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place on that one. And I don't, I don't know the answer. But at the end of the day, it, you know, we we can't just not patch. I, I understand that there's a lot of challenges with that, but I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for folks who don't patch unless it's, you know, kind of like a, you know, biomedical device that's forced to be in a certain version. Yeah. I, I think this, this is clearly a very different situation. You know, it's, it, it, it appears to be, uh, I certainly don't know if, which specific companies were involved nor the details, but it certainly seems like a situation where they, you know, they, uh, they, they haven't, they didn't renew their enterprise agreement or, you know, they bought, they bought a point version of office and they just, uh, you know, kind of let it be. Yeah. Which I think is pretty common. Actually. I think it's sadly common, but you're just asking for trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Now at, at the same time, I have to wonder if they had patched, and the you know these attackers were in fact really specifically interested in you know, compromising these people would you know would we be reading about some other other method of entry well that's a very good point and that is something to consider right it, this is like the same problem you have with a pen test the pen test found one in theory most pen tests find one point of vulnerability that you address so that's a very interesting question, a very interesting speculation. If this particular vulnerability had been closed, what other vulnerabilities did that particular attacker have in their toolkit that they could have pulled out? And you're right, we don't know. Um, they could have had O-days that they were willing to burn, and uh, we don't know. Right. So then it becomes, is there a viable economic cost to making them burn O-days? I mean, I think that's what you have, right? So if you if you keep yourself patched and up to date and you have otherwise good hygiene, then you, you kind of force them into that position. In theory or, In theory. you know, social engineering and other yeah, fishing yeah. techniques and such. But, right. you know, the other thing, 
and we've talked about this before, is, all right, so if you're not going to patch, what can you do to mitigate these sorts of threats? What other technology could you load in these boxes that, you know, with the understanding, hey, this box is going to get popped? Oh, I know. What can I do? I know. HDMI cables with antivirus on them. (laughs) Yes, the very special HDMI 1.3. C. 1.3C, yes. With with antivirus capabilities, absolutely. And if you don't know, uh, there is an Xbox cable floating around that on the back quite clearly states that the cable itself has antivirus capabilities for the clearest picture. That's that's marketing for you kids. Right oh, there. yeah. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, you know, I keep kind of wandering back to the fact of it's inevitable. Boxes are going to get popped. Okay, so how do we defeat that? Or how do we mitigate that? And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of technology that's trying to play in that sandbox right now. Um, and I think ultimately, I sort of am heading down that thought process of, you know, which I'm contradicting myself right now, but, you know, we patch and patch and patch and patch and patch, and we still get popped all the time. Okay. Is this a patch life cycle issue? Is this... You know, O-Days is this, you know, whatever. What if we just sort of turn this on the head and say, instead of trying to stop the vulnerabilities, we're just going to stop the exploitation. So it doesn't matter if we have vulnerabilities. We're going to attack at the exploitation point. And when I say attack, I mean mitigate. And there are technologies out there that are supposedly able to do that. Uh, But, of course, this is always an arms race, right? That is something that the bad guys will then start finding ways around. Um, but you know, as I've said often on the show, we have to go in with this assumption that we will be compromised, and then how do we detect it and mitigate it very rapidly? It's the only way I know how to do it going forward. Yeah, you know, the the other thing that strikes me too is I wonder, and I've not really seen great metrics on this, but what is the spread between um, compromises that arise as the result of exploitation versus simple garden variety malware that people voluntarily install. Hmm. Because you're not, you know, what we're talking about here is really protecting against the former and not the latter. That's a good point. So, I mean, I guess my, my where I'm going is I we can we can come up with a really really good system that prevents that mitigates exploitation kind of like you know maybe emet on steroids right but you know if people can still click on something and install malware to be able to see uh you know saddam hussein's getting hanged then oh really do you get a link for that <laughs> whatever um well and that leads into another story we're going to talk about tonight which is local admin rights that's right so yeah, oh, that seems like a great segue. And, and so, so I, I do have to, I do have to say, you know, and I, I posted on Twitter about this. Andy and I had an awesome discussion last week about this particular story, and I think we went on for like a half hour, at and, least. At and least. I'm pretty sure we solved most of the world's problems during that discussion. Yeah, yeah. I, Right, exactly. I mean, we we basically came up with the solution, and unfortunately, it wasn't recording. 
I, I had done some boneheaded thing and it wasn't recorded. So, yeah, I actually have a backup now. So that is not going to happen anymore. <laughs> I, you know, for the record, for everybody, I even offered to get back online with Jerry and re-record while it was fresh in our mind. But Jerry was committed to falling on the sword. That's right. I was tired. I wanted to go to bed. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So, And the problem is trying to recreate an epic conversation is never as good. No, that's true. So we're just going to have to just pretend that we never spoke of this. We sound bored. That's why. And start fresh. All right. So. Anyway. The, uh, the, this story comes from techworld.com. The title is Removing Admin Rights Would Ease 97% of Critical Microsoft Flaws. So this is a, we actually talked about the same report last year when the number was 92%. So it's, it's gone up quite a lot. Um, and and there, this, this report is put out by a company called Avecto, who, you know, as, as you might imagine, makes a product that solves the problem or, you know, addresses the problem in some way, shape or form. Um, but their, their point is that if you remove admin rights, they, they, their claim is that 97% of Windows operating system flaws would would be, exploitation would not be fruitful. 99.5% of Internet Explorer uh, vulnerabilities, exploitation would not be fruitful. And 95% of Microsoft Office vulnerabilities. So, you know, obviously that's a, that's a pretty good, you know, pretty good number, and they also pointed out that the number of of vulnerabilities was up sixty three percent year over year, which is quite quite a bit of growth. So, just on that aside, I always wonder about the number of vulnerabilities and such. I wonder if that means that we're getting more researchers, we're getting better at finding them, or if the code really is less secure. Because we're dealing with a subset of actual real vulnerabilities. We're only talking about the vulnerabilities found and reported, which does not equal vulnerabilities. So there's a whole different economic metric that goes into that. You're, you're absolutely right. And we've, I think we mentioned this on a couple of other shows. You know, Just take a step back for a second and think about the macro picture here, right? That, you know... Microsoft has been putting out uh, Internet Explorer fixes on a monthly basis for years and in years and years and years. And they continue to have a nonstop train of really highly critical vulnerabilities. And, you know, these are not newly introduced vulnerabilities for the most part. I'm sure some of them are. But they're not they're not new. Now there there is another aspect to this that probably you know certainly doesn't play into the um, into the story here is that not all of these vulnerabilities are being exploited actively, right? So you know what what this study did was actually they looked at every one of the um, the vulnerabilities that Microsoft released last year and put it in through some kind of a formula and determined whether or not it would it would have been 
exploitation that would have been feasible given admin rights or no admin rights. And and so that's a different question of, you know, what was being attacked last year. That's a very different question. So you got to keep that in mind. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's one that I think bears some level of investigation. In some ways, you could say that a higher level of vulnerabilities is actually a success. We want to find it. The other thing I'm wondering about is for all these patches that have been released for IE, let's pick an IE for a second. You wonder about the economics of it. We were having this debate online with somebody about what is the compelling reason to write secure code? And I was arguing that in general, the vast majority of folks who are purchasing some piece of software have, frankly, limited interest in security if that trade-off for that security is additional costs or less functionality or less innovation. And the manufacturers themselves are driven by innovation to keep up. So that being said, if I take a step back and I look at, okay, all the man time put into patching IE, ignoring uh, for a moment the market reality of getting a, a product out, just looking at the man time, would it have been cheaper for Microsoft to have, if they knew how and could have, that's always a key, written a more secure version of IE than continually patching it? Now, the flip side is you're assuming perfect knowledge on Microsoft's part. They know all their vulnerabilities, which is not true. The bad guys are always out there finding new vulnerabilities for them. So, But it's an interesting thought process, right? How much time and energy is put into patching versus secure coding up front? It's a, it's a, good, it's a really good question. And at the same time, too, there's an economic incentive. It seems like, maybe subtle, that if the software is secure up front, you know, the... the, the demand for ongoing maintenance and keeping up with the latest version, I think, starts to become less um, interesting, you know, less compelling of a business case from a customer perspective. So, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to go full, uh, you know, full crazy on, or, or conspiracy theory there, but, you know, I think there is a, to an extent, there's a business case from from a uh, a software manufacturer side. You you at the end of the day, you need to keep people coming back. Yeah, that's true. Um, and the market drives their reaction. I don't think this is any anything more complicated than that. Right, right. So, but back to the story at hand. Admin rights. Removing admin rights. I think this is a clear, obvious example of security versus functionality. You know, security versus annoyance factor. Security versus capability to get my job done. I take away admin rights from my users. I may save them a whole bunch of malware, but now I'm annoying the hell out of them because they can't install things. So what does that do? That leads to a huge influx of calls to my help desk. And do I have a way of managing that? And what cost is that versus dealing with the malware outbreaks? Yep. You know, as well as, you know, it's silly, but is there a morale hit? Is there a competitive hit? Is there, you know, this is like the classic case of security getting in the way of business and then people finding a way to go around it. And by the way, I'm not arguing one way or the other. 
I've worked in environments with admin rights and without admin rights. I think it's up to the individual company to make that decision point. But this is a very pure, perfect example of this. If you take away admin rights, you're going to probably reduce the productivity to a certain extent and probably annoy your users a great deal, and they probably are going to be finding ways around that. But you lower risk dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the, the, there's there's other benefits too. Going back to the discussion we had a little bit ago, um, if you do remove admin rights, you, you have the ability, you know, not only do problems like these exploitation issues become mitigated in large measure, but you also start tackling the problem of people installing, you know, again, the more garden variety, you know, malware that isn't trying to exploit something. So, you know, you, you have, you have an ability to defend against that as well. So, you know, I was, uh, this is, this is something that I've thought a lot about and I've, I've been talking with my friend, Bob, right, who is trying to help an organization out who does not, uh, who I should say, I said that wrong, who has admin rights and they're trying to consider taking away those admin rights for their employees. And they don't have Active Directory in their environment. And, you know, that's a really large cost to get in. And, you know, one of the points I, 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 brought up to Bob, and I think he already probably knew this, is you if you don't have Active Directory already, Active Directory kind of carries with it its own risk. Yeah. We've talked about this a few times. Right. Now, mind you, it also brings with it productivity enhancements, capabilities, everything else, but yeah, huge risk along with that. So, you know, in, on the one hand, you if you remove admin rights, you, you can address this particular problem that's raised in this article you can get some additional benefit of you know workstation integrity but on the other side you have a pretty significant investment in infrastructure and then also in help desk and now bob was telling me that he is talking with some companies like this uh, uh like this avecto who have other ways of removing admin rights that aren't as clean i guess is is the best way I can say it? Well, you know, one thing I was thinking about is for for those that do have admin rights, you know, we don't have the concept of sudo in Windows like we do in Unix, which is a really good way to fix this problem. Um, yeah, you can add third-party packages, I know, but let's just talk base Windows for a second here. I think it makes sense to have, for those folks who need and have been determined to need admin rights for their their environments... They should probably be rocking two accounts, one with and one without. So they do most of their normal stuff without, but if they do need to tweak their system, load a package, install something, can't wait for help desk, whatever it is, log out, log back in as admin user, do what they need to do, log back out, log back in as non-admin. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yep. But that's a pain in the ass. Most folks don't do that. I've not seen that implemented in most places. I'm sure some have, but I just haven't seen it. Um, and that takes a lot of discipline. Right. I think it also breaks a lot of tools, so a lot of uh, patch management tools and whatnot. I guess it would depend. I mean, most of the patch management tools are running off a service account in an AD environment. 
Right, but we just talked about not having an AD environment. Oh, I'm sorry. I was talking about yep. if you had an AD environment. Right. But I, I can't. I can't even conceive of not having an AD environment. I, that's crazy talk. <laughs> that's that's voodoo. So it's witchcraft. So here's another. Here's another. Um, uh, another dimension to this. Who? It, let, let's let's consider the average company that doesn't have admin rights on their. You know, doesn't allow admin rights on their workstations. Who? And, and by that, just. To back up a second, we mean the average rank and file user. We're not talking about help desk guys. No, no, I, I'm talking about the average company. So, right, so, no, I know, but when we say without admin rights, we mean yes, the average user at their laptop, desktops, whatever, who's just not in IT. Correct. That's what we're typically talking about. Here. Well, and so you you kind of you kind of went where I was going to go. Who oh. who in an organization like that ends up with admin rights? Oh well, help desk guys, network admin, or you know, um, Windows admin guys, server admins. Right. Um, it depends. I mean, we're not even talking about domain admin rights here. We're just talking about individual admin rights. Correct. Right. And and uh, and so, whose computer is used to you know to to transact or interface with some of the most uh, authoritative accounts in the organization. Right. right. The highest <laughs> do, risk is, 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 yeah, the IT guy. Do you, do you see the problem? Right. So what you're saying is that the ones who are most at risk are also the ones who have the highest privileged accounts and should be even more cautious and examining a better way to handle privileged accounts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think absolute minimally... In an environment like that, IT people, barn, you know, all across the board, should have two accounts, right? Well, there's also um, there's also third party software packages out there that help solve this problem. Oh, so, absolutely. I'm not trying to pimp any of them out. I'm just saying that this is not an unknown problem that doesn't have technical solutions. Right, but I I've seen it all too often, though. No, you're right, and. Most folks just say, the hell with it. Here, have admin rights. You're bothering me, kid. And that's going to keep biting us in the ass, I think. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the other thing that that happened in the past week uh, along with this is that the uh, the FFIC, the Federal Financial Institutions in, in, uh, sorry, Examination Council, released some guidance in uh, there were actually two different pieces of guidance, and the recommendations were, are almost identical. So I'll just focus on the one pertaining to destructive malware. And you know, the FFIC, I've had a lot of um, personal experience with, and and I actually, as a regulatory body, I think they do a very good job uh, relative to other, you know, other things that I've seen. Uh, and clearly, they've been pounding on the drum of least privilege, right? And and so they make it they make a point in the, you know, up in the the very beginning of this statement to say they're not issuing any new guidance. Right? But they did the, but they then go on to explicitly say thou shalt not allow users to have admin right local admin rights. Which you know is one of the first times I've seen this, you know, that kind of codified in a you know, in a, in a requirement like this. So really interesting. And, uh, I, I do wonder if from a banking perspective, if that changes a lot 
or if a lot of, you know, if most financial institutions already have that codified. So I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Um, and, and by the way, I, I think even if you're not in the banking sector, you know, it's, it's probably worth taking a look at. Um, the, the banking, the, the FFIC takes a much more risk focused view versus, uh, you know, let's say PCI or, or HIPAA, which tends to be more, more prescriptive and, you know, with sitting inside the box. So, um, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, completely off topic, but a lot of agencies and organizations have been publishing a lot of stuff lately. The PCI council keeps throwing out new documents like every week. They, they put out one on pet testing, like last week or the week before, they just put out one on tokenization. So there's a lot of guidance coming out right now from various regulatory bodies. Probably for good reason. I think there's been a lot of a lot of things happening. Yeah. So our last story comes from CSO, and the title is "Employees Have No Qualms in Selling Corporate Passwords." Those rat bastards. That's right. So. Um, so this is a survey by, um, I don't know who, who it was by. Basically, they found that um, one in seven of their, their uh, survey participants would sell their password, their company's password, for as little as 150 bucks. That's, um, and, and, you know, this is, this is a, there's a long history of this kind of thing. I mean, I remember back in the early 2000s, there was the experiment about chocolate bars. Which right. which is which is referenced in here, um, but I do ha- I do want to point out that um, there's a person named Christopher Friends, who is the director of IT infrastructure at Interfaith Medical, and um, he said some of the most sane things I've ever seen, which I just I want to give him kudos, right? But Friends said. Uh, sorry, but friends added that it is important to know how rigorous such research is. These surveys tend to interview people who are self who self select themselves for for participation, so they're not representative cross section. They, the surveys, often lack proper controls and do not typically try to verify if the user is actually revealing a password. Shocking! It makes you wonder how many people. Just make up a password on the spot for the free chocolate or the few dollars. <laughs> Holy cow! I just want to say thank you, Chris. This is right up your alley. This is this is like the perfect commentary that you love. Yes, because you love picking on these, rightly so. You you love to pick apart the methodologies of all these surveys, and I don't blame you. Most of these surveys are to reach a marketing goal. Believe it or not. Oh, I, I remember working absolutely. for vendors, and they were like, "All right, we need to go interview fifty people on the floor at RSA uh, about this stuff, so we can put out uh, marketing collateral." I'm like, okay. <laughs> Excuse me, uh, waitress working on the floor at RSA, uh, can you answer my survey? Yep, that's right. It's data. Uh, it's data. Oh my god! Well, kudos to him. I concur. So, um, but let's 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 assume for a moment there's something to be said. There's some kernel of truth in here. You know, I, this is this is another example of 
people are people are bad at doing responsible things. They're bad at picking good passwords. They're bad at remembering their passwords. They're you know apparently they're willing to sell it for 150 bucks or or some price, right? I mean maybe it's not 150 bucks. Maybe it's 500 or a thousand. But we know passwords have been a weak link for nigh on 20 years. Why are we still using them as an industry? Hell if I know. I think I think this fundamentally comes down to ease of use versus risk. Obviously. We could go two-factor. We could go three-factor. We could go, as much as I hate to say it, I don't want to do it. We could go biometric. I think biometric has its own problems, and I don't want to. But we choose not to as an industry for most things. We only go to two-factor when it really, really, really matters. That's true. And I think most people have said it's just too, It's just not executive proof enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, you know, I, I will tell you, I mean, certainly two-factor would would help here, right? Because, you know, unless, unless the person is willing to give away their, you know, their two factor, whatever, their smartphone or their key fob or whatever, you know, whatever the, the method of delivery was, which they're probably not going to be willing to do, that particular it, problem is mitigated. It'd be worth running another research study on that, comparing the two. True. I That's bet, true. I bet a physical token that you give away would have a much higher barrier than a piece of knowledge. Well, and especially since if they don't have that, now they have to go, I mean, they can't do their job. Right. right. Um, and so, so then that, that's one thing. The other thing that, that, that I was thinking of is kind of going back to the password manager thing, right? If you require, and, and I'm becoming more and more convinced of this, that we should require just obscenely complex passwords that you have absolutely no hope of ever conceivably remembering. You know, 40-character, completely random, you know, passwords, and, you know, they have to be stored in a password vault. You're not going to... I'm with you. I'm with you until I have to log into my Windows box in the morning. Well, that, but don't you have a password manager? I do, but I don't have access to it until I log in. Oh, for Pete's sake. No, my no, I'm serious. My initial AD login. I I have no access to a password manager at that point. As soon as I'm in, I'm I'm completely with you. A A, a. <laughs> <laughs> Right? So No, I get it. I get you. I get you. That's fair. So I don't I don't disagree. Um, I, I love the concept of a password manager. I use one, and I have very randomized, individual, unique passwords for all of my sites, which is great. Uh, until, by the way, we go back to single sign-on again back in the corporate environment, and then link it all back to AD. Yeah, and then you're signing with the same password. Over and over yep. and over. Why? Because it's convenient. Yep. Well, that's a good point. So uh, this is not a technology problem. This is an ease of use problem. Yeah. Yep. So I'm, you know, I think RSA probably nailed this properly in the beginning. A little token with a rotating 60-second code that you have a four-digit or eight-digit code that you pair with it, and that's that's your password, and it's good for that period of time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously that that has evolved a bit, and we've got everybody else and the brother emulating various different takes on that. But at the end of the day, I think that is 
probably pretty decent. It's simple. Yeah, it's it's simple and understandable. And and if you're curious, the reason why I'm never going to support biometric is because at the end of the day, biometric for most applications can be transmitted over the network, which means it's now been turned into a digital artifact. And as soon as I can replay that digital artifact, I'm doomed because guess what? I cannot change whatever my biometric marker is. I can always change my password. Yeah. So as soon as, soon as my biometric is compromised, I'm permanently screwed. Right. And things like thumbprints, you leave everywhere. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it might not be very practical right now, but you know, it is. It, it it's been proven practical to, you know, to do, do uh, fake fingerprints. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. you know, I I use the thumbprint or fingerprint scanner on, on my iPhone six. But what I like about it is, it's local. It's not being transmitted. You know, it's the right level of usability versus risk. Um. But I think we need to be very careful about biometrics. Everybody thinks it's a perfect, you know, sexy solution, and I think it's fraught with peril. Yeah, I agree. I do want to point out that there is there's a crazy reference to a wacky website in here. I was I was reading this, and I got down it's like three quarters of the way down, and I'm reading, and the website malicious link in a recent post argued that enterprises need to understand the psychology of employees and provide incentives for them not to be tempted to sell their credentials. And when I read that, I, I got very angry because I thought somebody else created a website called Malicious Link. Well, it turns out it's mine. <laughs> so. <sighs> it's very funny. Anyway. See, you, this is why you shouldn't be doing vodka shots for breakfast. Cl- clearly. Clearly. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, my, the, there's a link to the, the blog post I wrote. Basically, you know, my my point was I you know, I've talked about a lot about behavioral economics, and I really think that we've got a lot to learn about you know, fr- from an infosec perspective about psychology. And you know, this is this is I think this whole story is kind of a um, you know an, an indication of some limitations of of uh of people and that we've got to we've got to structure our programs in such a manner uh, and and by the way that's not necessarily always technical like i said in in my in my post that you know sometimes it's it's incentives mhm so anyway i invite you to read it uh that i think uh that will do it for uh, for this week's episode Indeed. So, um, yeah, we definitely appreciate you listening. You can uh, you can find links to all the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend, give us some feedback on iTunes, and uh, you can follow the, the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lurg, and you can follow me on Twitter at malicious link hey how about that huh and uh with that we'll talk again next week have a great week everybody thank you for listening as always thanks take care bye that would be annoying
and it would disrupt my carefully cultivated podcasting professionalism. Is that what we call it now? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. I've, I've been working for years on this level of pressure. I try to make it look effortless and easy, but believe me, it takes hours. It's like the warm up. It's like the ducks, research. right? The duck on the water, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to give away my secrets, but no, no, I get it. I get it. You know, I, I'm I still, I still get the pre-show bulimia, but I think I'm ready. Get the jitters. Well, I just puke a few times. Oh, <laughs> then you're good. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, got it, got it. You know, it, it makes me nervous talking to like seven people. So I gotta, you know. Totally. I do a little meth, I puke, do a little coke, and I'm good. It's like your thing. It's like a pitcher that touches their hat three yeah, times, right? it's true. And um, and then apparently I have some ginger ale, which is apparently the thing. Nice. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.